Hello, my name is Julia, and this is the Media Podcast where I talk about medicine in the context of media. Today's episode is called Guts as a tribute to Olivia Rodrigo because Guts was one of my favorite albums of 2023, and I just love her. I think she is so talented and fun and cool. I loved her first album, Sour, so much. I was like, how could she do it again? But but she did. Guts was just as good. I loved it. My favorite songs are probably Lacey and Get Him Back and All-American Bitch. Overall, amazing album. But I'm calling this Guts in honor of Olivia, but not because we're talking about Olivia Rodrigo. Today, we're talking about literal guts or your guts, aka your intestines. We are talking all things IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, which is a very common intestinal condition that you may have seen on social media. TikToks about IBS are really odd to me, which is why I wanted to make this episode. If you search IBS on TikTok, or when I did anyways, all the top videos that came up are like girls with sad music playing and they're just looking at the ground and the text comes up and it's like, get ready with me for an IBS player. This is all fine if this is how they cope with IBS. If you don't know much about IBS and you see these videos, you're not going to know anything from it. It's probably very confusing to you. You probably still have no idea what IBS is, so... That's why we're talking about it here. I find IBS pretty interesting because it is a really complicated condition. So today we'll talk about what IBS is, how it's diagnosed, the underlying process that causes these symptoms, and some types of treatment. So IBS is quite common in the U.S. It is estimated that up to 15% of the population have IBS, more so women than men, and IBS is not quite a disease, but a functional disorder. So a functional disorder is, that's kind of an umbrella term. These disorders can affect all parts of the body, but really it's a medical condition that's due to a change in function, not disease affecting the structure of the body. So things aren't quite working properly, but there is limited evidence of actual damage to the organs that are affected. So in the case of IBS, this affects the gastrointestinal or GI tract and is characterized by chronic abdominal pain and changes in bowel habits. So to get into those major symptom groups, the first of which chronic abdominal pain, it means chronic long-term abdominal pain. It could be described usually as like a cramping feeling and the pain is usually related to defecation or pooping. So usually you have pain that gets better after you go to the bathroom. It's also associated with bloating and increased gas production. And it's often this pain is exacerbated by emotional stress and by eating. And we will get into why later. The other main group of symptoms is changes in bowel habits. So that could be diarrhea or constipation. You can have IBS characterized by one or the other or both. And over time, it can switch between them. In terms of diagnosis, IBS can be suspected in people with chronic abdominal pain and changes in their bowel habits. But like I said, it's not, there's no diseased 
tissue. There's nothing that's really obviously wrong that can be measured. And so this is what's called a clinical diagnosis. So it's based on how patients look and the symptoms they described, not based on actual like blood markers or imaging findings or something like that. So there's actually several different established criteria to diagnosis, but the most common is called the Rome 4 criteria. So that's what we'll go over today. So according to the Rome 4 criteria, IBS is defined as recurrent abdominal pain at least one day per week over the last three months and associated with either defecation. So again, like abdominal pain related to pooping, a change in stool frequency. So going more or less often, which can be seen in diarrhea constipation or associated with a change in stool form, which also may be associated with diarrhea or constipation. So it's diagnosed abdominal pain related to defecation associated with the change in stool frequency or stool form. And so two of those three things. If you are like me, and maybe you're also a Jewish person, this criteria may be shocking to you. When I learned this was a condition, I was like, you're kidding. Diarrhea and a stomachache once a week is a medical condition. To me, I honestly always associated eating with stomachaches, changes in bowel habits were very common and these were always normal to me because I've always experienced it. I don't really say I have IBS. I've never sought medical attention for these symptoms, but do I fit the criteria of IBS? A hundred percent? I sure do. So this is a good example to say that there's a lot of people who just assume IBS symptoms are part of everyday life and never seek medical attention. And one study actually estimated that about 40% of people who do meet criteria for IBS aren't formally diagnosed and never seek attention for it. And that is okay. IBS looks different for everyone, both in the symptoms that you have, so how frequent or severe these symptoms are, and how people react to their symptoms. So sometimes people just accept their symptoms or they learn how to kind of make them better or worse on their own and act accordingly. And other people, maybe their symptoms are more severe or maybe they have the same exact symptoms, but they find them more distressing than other people do and they seek medical attention. And that's also great because there are a lot of ways to help. So even though this is a clinical diagnosis, there are still lab testing we do when suspicious for IBS just to make sure we're not missing anything else. So like I said, no specific labs or imaging indicate IBS, but if everything is normal, that makes IBS more likely to be the cause of the symptoms you're experiencing. So for everybody with suspected IBS, we look at their blood levels because you're concerned for any blood loss, which may indicate something different, especially IBD or inflammatory bowel disease. If the patients are having diarrhea as opposed to constipation, you can look at things like blood in the stool, testing the stool for something called giardia, which is a parasite, checking for something called celiac disease, which is an autoimmune disease against gluten, and checking blood markers for inflammation, which again, if you are in a highly inflammatory state, these markers will be elevated in like IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, but they should be normal in IBS. If any of these are abnormal, so if it shows that you're losing blood, if blood is present in the stool, if you have an obvious infectious agent or an autoimmune disease like celiac, then you probably don't have IBS and you can pursue other workup. Clinically, these symptoms might suggest that something else is going on. So if these symptoms first arise over the age of 50, if you have obvious 
blood that you can see in your stool. If you have what's called nocturnal diarrhea, so waking up in the middle of the night frequently to use the bathroom, that is not often seen in IBS. If the pain is very progressive, so it starts more subtle and gets worse and worse over time and it's persistent, you might have something in your abdomen causing that pain. So you'd want to get that worked up. Or if you have a strong family history of one of those autoimmune conditions I mentioned or of colon cancer, then you might think about something else. Another reason you might be concerned for something beyond IBS is with unexplained weight loss. And another one of the first TikToks that came up when I searched IBS is a TikTok of somebody. I'm not sure if she was a doctor. She was wearing a stethoscope in the video, but didn't say who she was. And I didn't really look too much into her. But she was saying that IBS isn't a real diagnosis because it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So because we're rolling out these things and diagnosing IBS, she's saying it's not real and there's something else going on and you need to demand more workup. That is not true. One study that followed many people diagnosed with IBS over six years and found that over time, two to five percent of those people initially diagnosed with IBS ended up having something else. That is a tiny percentage. And it's not right for you to keep chasing something and like stressing and worrying that something is wrong when IBS is quite common. There's a lot of reasons to explain why it might be going on, even though it's not actual disease. And there's a lot of treatments that are pretty, pretty benign to try. So like pretty safe, easy treatments, like changes in your diet and things that we'll talk about later. So it's not right to chase something else going on, insisting on scoping and things like that when all of that initial workup is normal, when you can try to instead manage these symptoms. So I just wanted to say this, even though it might be, you know, a diagnosis of exclusion, all of that workup being negative is good and it's reassuring and you don't need to keep chasing a disease when all of those markers are normal because IBS is a real condition. There are lots of functional conditions that are very real in the way that they affect people and they can still be managed. And so accepting that and working with your provider to treat it, in my opinion, is a better course of action than chasing something else. Like I said, if you have any of those red flag symptoms, if you lost a ton of weight or are very sure like the way your pain is progressing, you're afraid of something else going on, then advocate for yourself, work with your doctor, you can continue workup. But in general, if you meet the criteria and all of your workup is negative, I don't think you need to, like this person in this TikTok said, demand more workup. It might not lead to any better answers. It likely won't. Okay, so now that we talked a little bit about what IBS might look like and what it does not look like when we should be suspicious for something else, let's talk about what might be causing the symptoms in the first place. So Like I said, even though you don't have any obvious disease tissue, there may be things going on that are influencing your symptoms. And so IBS is multifactorial, which means it's influenced by many things, as are many things in medicine. So this means IBS is influenced by things like your genetics. It often runs in families. It's influenced by diet or your intestinal microbiome, which is like your gut bacteria you may have heard of. It might be influenced by low-grade inflammation, which I'll elaborate on, and changes in what is called the neuroendocrine system of the gut. So first of those, let's talk a little bit about diet. There is no evidence that any food allergy or intolerance plays a role in IBS. But something that is implicated in IBS is something called FODMAPs. FODMAPs are short-chain carbohydrates, and those are present in 
lots of different fruits, apples, pears, watermelon, honey, dairy, and things like wheat, rag, garlic, onions, legumes, cabbage, artichokes, leeks, asparagus, lentils, soy, Brussels sprouts, broccoli. Lots of things may contain FODMAPs, and FODMAPs are poorly absorbed. So a lot of them stick around in your gut instead of being absorbed like into your bloodstream. So when those FODMAPs stick around, they can assist bacterial fermentation. And so bacterial fermentation is basically a way bacterial kind of breaks, bacteria kind of breaks things down. And so when these things stick around the gut, bacteria breaks them down. And in doing so, it produces gas, which can cause abdominal distension, discomfort, pain, etc. A deficiency of fiber is also commonly implicated in IBS. And so both FODMAPs and fiber can influence symptoms like diarrhea and constipation, and they also can influence like the pain and the bloating, etc. by influencing your intestinal bacteria or your gut bacteria. So just another word on your microbiome. Every person's colon is unique and it contains up to 500 different species of bacteria. So the bacterial flora is affected by diet, changes in your climate, your stress, other illnesses, can influence your bacteria, aging, treatment with things like antibiotic, kills that gut bacteria. And studies have shown that gut bacteria in IBS patients is different than those who do not have IBS, specifically with fewer species of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium species. So all of those factors that I just described may affect those species of bacteria and the lack of those species may just occur in patients with IBS or they might be responsible for the symptoms. Because, like I said, it's multifactorial and all of these links are not super clear. Another cause of symptoms in the case of IBS is, like I said, low-grade inflammation. And so in patients with IBS, it used to be thought that it was not at all inflammatory because there's no evidence of inflammation. Like I said, those inflammatory markers in your blood that are abnormal in inflammatory bowel disease, they're normal in IBS. And when people have gotten scoped for IBS and people have looked under a microscope at the walls of the intestines that are very abnormal in other diseases like celiac disease and IBD. They're always pretty normal in the case of IBS. However, with more modern sequencing techniques, small alterations have been reported in the walls of the colon. So there might be very subtle, low-grade subclinical changes in IBS. So there might be some inflammation going on that causes symptoms, but again, it's not causing a wide inflammatory response. It's really hard to detect. So the actual role of this inflammation is a little bit unclear. And post-infectious IBS has also been reported. So the onset of IBS symptoms after having some different kind of GI infection, so like food poisoning or a viral gastroenteritis, which is like vomiting and diarrhea due to a virus. And so it's thought that this infection might either cause this low-grade inflammation or it's possible that like I said, illness can infect the microbiome. So you might just have a different gut bacteria after an infection and then you have IBS symptoms. Or if you have a certain illness that you take antibiotics for, again, affecting your microbiome, causing your symptoms. So unclear if the role of infection is causing lingering inflammation after the infection subsides and that's what's causing your symptoms. Or if the infection alters your microbiome and then that is causing your longer-term symptoms, but both are interesting things to think about. And so while we think about diet, microbiome, infection, all of these things are thought to be involved in IBS, but the I would say the most established connection between 
anything in IBS symptoms is the brain. So the interaction between your brain and your gut is super strong. And the effect of stress on IBS is very much recognized by both patients and clinicians. So IBS symptoms can kind of increase, decrease on a day-to-day basis based on stressful events. And like significant lifetime stressors also are more prevalent amongst people with IBS versus people without IBS. So big stressful events can influence the gut over time. And then also day-to-day stress can exacerbate symptoms. I know for me personally, my stomach is very affected by stress whenever I have a big exam or even like a first date. I always have very bad GI symptoms beforehand. So it is not a surprise to me at all that this is a kind of widely recognized, established connection. The link between psychological stress and IBS is because of what's called the brain-gut axis. So the connection between your central nervous system or your brain and your enteric nervous system, which are the nerve cells in your gut. And this is a very interesting and complex topic. Could talk about it all day, so I'll try to keep it simple. But the nervous system in your gut, so the nerve cells in your intestines, play a huge role in regulating the physiology. So the secretions of things, the motility, so like how things are moving along your GI tract, the release of neuropeptides and hormones. So stress can affect our emotional response circuits in our brain, and that can influence the signals that our brain sends to our gut, and that can influence how the gut works. So a lot of different neuropeptides and hormones have been implicated in this connection, but serotonin is very much found to have a close correlation with IBS symptoms. And serotonin you may have heard of because it's also very much implicated in mood and mood disorders. Like our first line treatment for anxiety, depression is something called a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, SSRI, something like Prozac, which increases the serotonin in your brain and relieves symptoms of anxiety and depression. Anxiety and depression have been found to be more frequent and intense in IBS patients. So they're associated with more GI symptoms and more, again, disability and impairment in your day-to-day life. It used to be thought that anxiety and depression is super prevalent in this population, but recently a study came out, and I found this very interesting, in that, again, those people might just stress about these symptoms more, so they might be more likely to seek healthcare, and so that kind of might skew the representation of these conditions in people with IBS. So because if you're a more anxious person, you might seek medical attention for these GI symptoms. More healthcare providers are seeing people with IBS and anxiety, so they might think that it's more common than it actually is. And so, again, it might be kind of overrepresented in this population. So the link between stress and IBS is very much established. That is less debatable, but things like anxiety and depression that previously were thought to be very prevalent in people with IBS now might be kind of less so. So there is a relationship there, but it might be less of a strong link than people once thought. So now that we talked about all the things that influence IBS, let's talk about how we might treat it. In patients with just mild symptoms or more intermittent symptoms, so symptoms that aren't happening every day, that are not impairing quality of life, the initial recommendation is usually dietary changes and lifestyle changes. So in terms of dietary changes, you will hear a ton of IBS diet recommendations, again, on social media and even in mainstream media and magazine articles, newspaper articles, on TV, 
what have you. So keeping close record of your diet and your symptoms, you might find an obvious link between certain food and IBS. If you don't have an obvious connection, there's something called a traditional IBS diet, which is having a regular meal pattern. So instead of eating sporadically, having kind of more scheduled meals, avoiding really large meals and avoiding intake of fat, insoluble fibers, caffeine and gas producing foods. So that's like beans, cabbage, onions and a low FODMAP diet also includes a lot of those foods that are implicated in a traditional IBS diet. So cutting out FODMAPs might be a good place to start too if you don't have an obvious food trigger. And like I said earlier, there's a ton of foods that contain FODMAPs. So that might be no way to live if you cut out all those things. And I think that that's fair. But sometimes you can cut everything out at once if your symptoms improve, amazing. And then you can kind of slowly introduce each food. And then that way, if one of those things or a couple of those things specifically exacerbate your symptoms, then you could just leave those things out moving forward, but bring everything else back in and try to kind of pinpoint more specific foods that exacerbate your symptoms. Things like lactose and gluten are not really thought to play a role in IBS at all. If your symptoms are related to lactose, you may have lactose intolerant and you can try a lactose-free diet and see if that helps. If it does though, it's it might just be lactose intolerance and not IBS. But you also could have both lactose intolerance and IBS. And one study showed that patients with IBS and lactose intolerance might have more severe lactose intolerance symptoms. So again, they're perceiving that pain as worse than somebody with just lactose intolerance and not IBS. So in that case, again, cutting out lactose might not improve all of your symptoms. If it improves everything, you probably just have lactose intolerance. If there's some partial improvement, then you might have both lactose intolerance and IBS. I hope that makes sense. Same with gluten intolerance. Celiac disease, like I said, is an autoimmune reaction to gluten. That is a completely different disease than IBS. Again, you could have both. And then there's something called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So being sensitive to gluten without having that autoimmune reaction. But again, there's not really any evidence that that is implicated in IBS specifically. And then fiber, like I mentioned, has been found to be implicated in IBS. Something called soluble fiber can help people with IBS versus something called insoluble fiber, which has not been found to treat IBS. So things that are soluble are things like psyllium. Things that are insoluble are things like wheat bran. Psyllium has been found to improve both constipation and diarrhea in patients with IBS. Could be really great. Could be purchased over the counter, but it is not regulated very well. So you can get a packet of psyllium, a teaspoon in a jar, a pill. And between those things, the actual amount of psyllium you're getting might vary a lot. So like not everything is like the specific same dose, if that makes sense. So just making sure that if you're taking something like psyllium, paying attention to the dose on the label so you know how much you're intaking. And of course, working with a doctor or a dietitian if you need help kind of figuring out how much fiber you should be taking. Fiber is something that is not terribly dangerous to take too much of. So this is not like a super scary thing to take the wrong amount of or take over the counter, but just to optimize the effect of it and make sure your symptoms are being addressed appropriately, you should be taking the recommended dose. And when I mentioned diet and lifestyle changes, I do want to say, even though people really hate when doctors suggest exercising as a treatment for anything, but studies have shown a 
lot of benefit in IBS patients when exercising. Now, if people are not satisfied with diet and exercise, if they're still having pretty severe or frequent symptoms, if you have really severe symptoms to begin with and you can't really function day to day, there are other things you could do. So for constipation, you can take laxatives, which will help with the constipation, but won't really affect abdominal pain, bloating, gas. You can take what's called motility agents, so help kind of move things around the GI tract. And if you have more of a diarrhea predominant IBS, you can take anti-diarrheal medications. And then something else you could do, like I said, serotonin is very much implicated in IBS. So there are different agents that act on serotonin in the gut and are thought to improve this abdominal pain. In that same vein, besides medications that act more so on the serotonin in your gut, you can try antidepressants. So antidepressants have properties besides their mood-improving effects that can help with pain in general, specifically a class called tricyclic antidepressants or TCAs. These can influence the gut by slowing down intestinal movement, improving diarrhea, and, and these medications have been found to be very, very effective in relieving IBS symptoms in patients. Comparing those with SSRIs, which I mentioned earlier, so selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, there hasn't been a lot of data that show that SSRIs treat IBS on its own, but it has been shown that people who do have anxiety or depression and IBS have IBS relief via treatment with these SSRIs. So in people with just IBS, unclear of SSRIs are effective in patients, again, with something like anxiety and depression, as well as IBS, they might have a lot of symptom relief. And something that I get asked about a ton clinically we're talking a lot about gut microbiome. So do probiotics help with symptoms? Unclear. There's not really been an established association between probiotics and IBS symptoms. So probiotics are not often recommended in patients by healthcare providers. They could help via the placebo effect. They might improve your gut microbiome, but again, not really any clear benefit. So would not be the first thing I recommended, but that is also something that doesn't have a lot of obvious negative side effects. So if you want to try a probiotic, whenever I have patients asking about that, I never say I recommend it, but I say it's not likely to harm you in any way. If you think it might be helpful, you are welcome to try it. I think that is fine. And I kind of maybe danced around this throughout this talk, but I don't know if I've really said it directly, but IBS, because there's not really any obvious diseased tissue implicated, there's no increased risk of things like cancer. People with IBS do not have a shortened lifespan. They're not at any increased risk for any other chronic conditions. And so that is a good thing. But that does not mean that this is nothing, that it doesn't affect quality of life or influences your relation with food or your social life or your ability to go to work and do things because of the GI symptoms you may experience. This presents in really diverse ways. It, like I said, has a lot of different influences acting on it. So it is a pretty complicated condition and the effect it has on people's lives varies a lot from person to person. Overall, it is not a super dangerous condition to have, but that doesn't mean it's not a distressing condition to have and can affect your life in many ways. So just wanted to say that, but yeah, if you're still here. If you listened to this whole episode, thank you so much. I am so happy you're here. I hope that you learned something. And if you have any questions or 
if there are any other topics you would like me to discuss in the future, then you can send them to me at Media Podcast on TikTok or Instagram, or you can email me at mediapodcast at gmail.com.